Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you. I want to talk to you about two different ways to study the Bible that are really important. One is what I, I like to use the term, the flyover. Imagine that you're a golfer. That's how I have to do. I imagine that I'm a golfer. And I'm going to a new course that I've never golfed before. And there are all kinds of sand traps and water hazards and trees, certain places. And I'm getting ready to tee off. And the guy says, if you want to come in the clubhouse... We have a little video that we can show you. It's a drone video of a drone that flew over the whole course. And if you watch this video, you can see the whole course. That's what I call the flyover. It's a really important way to study the Bible. It's not new. In the Bible Institute movement many years ago, they would always start out with what they called Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. It's just another way of saying if you want to get the details right, you have to have them in the context of the big picture. You want a flyover of the Bible first. This is really serious and important in Bible study to first get the big picture. And so when you do this, which is what we're doing in this series, it's a flyover of the Sermon on the Mount, your first impression might be, well, this is kind of lightweight. This isn't like down to the details and and this isn't like uh, heavy lifting. This is a, a 30,000-foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to defend that kind of Bible study because you'll hear this from me a lot. I think we understand the Bible a lot better if we get the fly over first. So a little practical tip for you would be one of the things that you can do if you want to get a flyover of whatever it is that you're studying, get yourself a, you know, of course you could buy Bible commentaries and so forth, but that might be a bit ponderous buy a good Bible study, like a study Bible. So for instance, a couple study Bibles that I, I would recommend would be the ESV study Bible. I'm not talking about the ESV version. There's the English Standard Version of the Bible. This is what I happen to preach from. But the English Standard Version study Bible has study notes with it. It's a big, thick thing, and you've got to drop a little green to get it. But it's worthwhile. You can get it on your app. You can get an app on your phone, or you can buy a copy of it. You can buy it in hardcover or an expensive leather edition. But anyway, get a good Bible study, because then when you read the articles that are usually written by scholars and condensed into a, a you know, kind of a condensed form, you're going to get a good flyover of that book. So now when you read, you know what to look for. You're reading a Bible book and you're thinking, what is this all about? Well, you know ahead of time because you kind of got the Wikipedia version first. I'm making an appeal to you to have some respect for the flyover of the Bible. This is, a, and you'll hear this from me a lot, I believe this deeply, and that is back up and get the big picture clearly in your mind. And, here, and here's one of the reasons why this is true. Maybe one of the keys to Bible interpretation is what they call context, right? Understand the context. Who is the author? What was the setting? Why were they saying this? Who were they saying it to? What was going on at the time? This is big picture stuff. Sometimes that's called the provenance of a book. Anyway, that's one way to study the Bible, and that's an important way to study the Bible, and it's a way to study the Bible that I will use a lot, and I will defend to the death. Can you tell I am serious about this? So that's important, and I'm not going to apologize for that ever. Don't even try to argue with me about that. This is an argument you will lose. All right, anyway, that, so now that I've shown my, my humility, uh, there's, the other, uh, there's the other one, and that is like what I call picking the orange, picking the orange. 
So for instance, if you were to fly over, if you were to go to Florida and you were to have a drone flight over an orange orchard, you know, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? You could just say, oh, what a beautiful orchard that is. It's a beautiful orchard. Look at all those beautiful, big, round, orange, juicy oranges at 30,000 feet or at 20 feet or whatever. It's like, that's not the way you want to do an orange orchard. Am I right? You want to walk down the row. You want to reach up. You want to pick an orange. George is just back from Florida, so I'm speaking his language. Welcome back. You want to pick that. Have you done this down in Florida? Pick the orange, peel the orange, section the orange, and you want the juice to run down your chin. I know what you're thinking right now. Let me go home so I can eat oranges. But we're here to study the Bible. What we want is we want the big flyover so that we can taste the sweetness of the orange when we get down to the details of the Bible. So I'm trying to defend what we're doing here in just a kind of a high flyover of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of five discourses of Jesus that are given in Matthew. It's the first of the five. That's perhaps the most famous of the five of them. That's probably arguable, but it certainly is well known. And we have an, the essence of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. No Jesus follower would ever want to say, I'm a Jesus follower, but I've never really seriously considered the Sermon on the Mount. It'd be almost like we would walk up to Jesus and he said to us one day, so what did you think of my Sermon on the Mount? And we would want to say to him, I loved it, I laughed, I cried, I read it over and over again, I memorized it, I tried to live by it. It was precious to me, Jesus. That's what we want to say, right? And so, to take you up to speed about where we are, do you have a little guide to following Jesus? A field guide to following Jesus. All the really bright students have one of these. And, uh, and you'll notice that we put this together, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and you'll notice that it's in, that, that we're flying over the Sermon on the Mount, and we're making 14 observations about Jesus' people. Today, our observations number 8, 9, and 10. So if you come to church and it's like the points are 8, 9, and 10, that seems a little weird, but you're stepping into the middle of this. Point number one was, in Matthew 5, Jesus' people are devoted to glorifying God through good works. Point number two was Jesus' people love the law of God, but they reject perversions of the law, legalism. Point number three was Jesus' people are kind and forgiving in their conduct and speech. If you remember going through these, weren't they convicting? This has been the most convicting series lately that I preach. It's just like, wow, I feel convicted just studying to talk about this. Number four, Jesus' people are pure in their behavior and in their talk and in their secret thoughts. Number five, and, they, and they're true to their mates, true to their mates. Number five, Jesus' people keep their word Number six, Jesus' people don't retaliate, but they go the second mile. Number seven, Jesus' people love their enemies. And now today, we're on message number four, and the points are numbered eight and nine and ten. And the, and the first of them is that Jesus' people give, and they pray, and they fast without hypocrisy. What I'd like to do, first of all, though, is just, like, let's just spend our time reading. We're going to cover the entire sixth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read it to you. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Beware, Jesus said, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Then you have no reward in, from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, 
sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues in the streets that they may be praised by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you pray go into your room shut the door pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret he will reward you and when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do they think they will be heard for their many words they think they will be heard for their many words do not be like them your father knows what you need before you ask him pray like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses and when you fast don't look gloomy like the hypocrites they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others truly i say to you they've received their reward but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness and then the light in you will be darkness what great darkness no one can serve two masters so he'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money and therefore i tell you don't be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you'll drink or your body what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns yet your heavenly father feeds them None of uh, are, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What will I eat, or what will I drink, or what will I wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, but for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. 
sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I said, okay, let's see this first thing. Jesus' people give, and they fast, and they pray without hypocrisy. Three times, Jesus talks about that he's assuming that you're going to give. He's assuming that you're going to pray. He's assuming that you're going to fast. And three times, he says, don't do this like hypocrites do it, so that they will be seen of men. Don't do it so that, the re- so that your reward for what you give or for how you pray or for that you fast comes from people, but rather do it in secret so your reward will come from your heavenly Father. It's really clear in this text that in these three things, they have this in common. He, he goes straight after the hypocrites and calls them by name scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He calls them out very baldly, very directly, this is not the way you give. This is not the way you pray. This is not the way you fast. If you pr- give this way, if you pray this way, if you fast this way, the all, only reward you're going to get is from the people you're trying to impress. But you will not get any reward from your Father. He says, do your giving, do your praying, and do your fasting in a secret way, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, that's huge. So notice these things. Is that first, Jesus' people, they quietly give. We read that in verses 1 through 4. And, and again, Jesus talked about how the hypocrites give so they can be seen and how his, Jesus' people give so that they can be rewarded of their Father. And then Jesus' people, not only do they quietly give, but Jesus' people are faithful in their prayers. I've included it in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Take a look at that. This is a precious passage, and it, it really is also about prayer ask and it will be given you this is still in the sermon on the mount jesus says ask and it will be given you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open and then this is beautiful which one of you if his son ask him for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if you then i think this is humorous who are evil <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him <coughs> and then he goes in this section he goes into what we call the uh the lord's prayer it's a sample prayer and and we could of course do a series of messages on this but let me make a couple comments about it that I think will help you. Here's what I would have you notice about this, and I think he wanted us to notice about this. Notice how short the prayer is. Notice how simple the prayer is. When I was a boy, I got thrown off a little bit in my prayer life because I, I heard stories of great Christians, great unusual mystics and Christians that prayed for hours. I, I read stories about how their knees would wear out the floor, and I thought, I need to pray for hours, but I was hyperactive. God made me that way, I think. It might be my fallen nature. It might be the way he wanted me to be. I couldn't do anything for that long except maybe talk, but I couldn't pray to God that long. And I would go up to my room, and I would kneel down. I would start praying, and I would just pray everything. Have you done this? Pray everything I can think of. Everything I prayed around the world, all the missionaries I knew, my aunts and uncles and rebellious cousins and deacons and their kids and all of that. And then when I was all done, I would look at my watch, it would be like seven minutes. I literally prayed around the world in seven minutes. Have you, how many of you have done this? And you're like, well, I guess I'm not a great prayer warrior. 
Because, you know, when Jesus is teaching on prayer, he says, whatever you do, don't pray unless you have a couple of three hours to give me. That's not the tenor of Jesus' teaching on prayer at all. The tenor of Jesus' teaching on prayer is very simple and very short. It's like this, uh, like when you have a need, tell me. Talk to me about it, tell me. And the, and the sample prayer is very, very short. It's short and simple. I heard a story once of D.L. Moody visited London, and he had a big crusade in London. And there were thousands of people there, and it involved all the clerics, all the pastors, and all the, the big shots in the religious world in London. And he was trying to involve them all in the meeting. You know, Moody was there. His music name was Ira Sankey. Moody Sankey. And Moody was an unusual guy. Butchered the king's English. He was great. He was a great speaker, but he wasn't an educated speaker. He had great instincts. He wasn't a high church guy. And so he's there, and he is presiding, and he has this local pastor pray. And the local pastor gets up, and he launches into a lengthy, fancy, flowery, theologically laden, interminable prayer. It's like never going to end. There was a young man sitting there, and his name was Wilfred Grenfell. Wilfred Grenfell was the kind, he was a man's man, he was an outdoorsman. He was not the kind of guy who liked to sit still. He said, I'm going to go hear Moody. But then when he heard this pastor just going on and on with this long prayer, he said, I'm out of here. I'm not going to listen to this long prayer. He got up to leave. But when he got up to leave, Moody interrupted the pastor, and he says, while our brother is finishing his prayer, let's have Sankey lead us in a rousing song. So... Grenfell, Wilfred Grenfell stayed and was converted and went to Labrador. And today, if you were to go to Labrador, you would see there are hospitals and schools and dispensaries and churches. And he was knighted in England because Moody wouldn't put up with a long, wandering prayer in church. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. So if you want to pray for hours, that's great. There will be times in your life when you're overwhelmed with grief or, or need, and you may occasionally pray for hours, but most of your prayers should be simple, direct prayers that express your heart to a Savior who is like a good, good Father who loves you and he wants to know what's on your heart. That's, can you see that's what he's saying here? It's interesting to look at this prayer you know, briefly. Notice that when we pray, we should pray with reverence for God hallowed be thy name don't tack on little things at the end of your prayer like jesus name amen i pray pray amen you ever hear people do that at the end of their prayer they go jesus name i pray amen it's kind of like you're talking to jesus like that slow down a little bit use his name like you have reverence for him and then we should desire his purposes when we pray when we pray he says pray your kingdom come in other words when we pray we should say to god god i want what you want I want what you want. That might help your prayers, by the way. God, I just want what you want. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. You know, like it is in heaven. And this is a great thing. The Bible this is a great uh, piece of the narrative that goes through the Bible that God wants to bring his will like it's done in heaven to earth. He wants to bring heaven and earth together. This is a good thing to pray. And then the petition for daily needs. Leave us to stay our daily bread. He wants you to tell him that you need to pay your rent. He wants you to tell him that you need gas for your car, that you need money for your daughter's braces. He cares so much about that. He's such a good father. Tell us when you need daily bread. If you, how many of you, your parents and your child, you would want them to tell you when they had a need? And how many of you have had the experience where you said to your kid after they didn't tell you, why didn't you tell me that? Why didn't you tell me you needed that? I would have gone without 
I would have happily gone without too. But our Heavenly Father doesn't have to go without. He wants us to depend on him. He lets us have needs in our life so that we live in a blessed dependence on him. How beautiful is that? And so we have that. And then we have penitent hearts when we pray. We say, Lord, I'm coming to you in prayer that there's sin in my life. And so I want to start by saying, I'm sorry, God, for whatever's in my life that shouldn't be. Penitent, forgive us, forgive us our, our trespasses. And then we, we pray with merciful hearts as we forgive those who trespass against us. We're, we're, we're recipients of mercy and we would not withhold mercy from any man. We would not hold, withhold mercy from any woman, anybody. We just say, God, I, I just live under the mercy. And I want to welcome other people under the mercy. That's how we pray. And then at the end of that prayer, he said, and ask for deliverance from evil. Now, folks, you know this. If you have any spiritual sensitivity, you know that we live in an evil time, full of great evil, full of great wickedness, full of great rebellion against God. If you don't see that, then you need to ask God to give you an enlightenment about what's happening in our nation, what's happening among people who are in rebellion against God and his word. And we get sucked into that rebellion. We get sucked into that evil. We get destroyed by that evil. Every day we should pray to God, deliver us from evil, God. Deliver us from temptation. So this is a sample of how he said to pray. And so Jesus' people, they, they, they quietly give and they faithfully pray, but they also hunger for God. They, they actually fast. It's interesting, the Bible in the New Testament never commands fasting, but it assumes fasting. I just think that's fascinating. It's almost like, you know, when you, you go away and your, your son is at home and you say to your son, man, I'm looking forward to getting home tonight, you know. Once, we get the, once I get the garage cleaned out, we're gonna be able to go for a bike ride. You don't say to your son, listen to me, you clean the garage. You don't say that. You just say, after I clean the garage tonight, we're going to go for a bike ride. And then a, a boy that loves his dad might go, oh, wait a minute. I'll clean the garage while my dad is gone. And when he gets home, he'll be so happy, I'll have more time to ride a bike. And then he just joyfully goes around about the duty of cleaning the garage. And then he sees a smile on his father's face. I think that's what Jesus was teaching about fasting I want you to hunger for me. This is important. If you don't hunger for God and you have your hungers located in something else, you're always going to be empty. If you hunger for God, you're always going to be satisfied. And he knew that. So sometimes he said, you're going to fast. Not about you. And <laughs> I've had some experience in fasting. Okay, so somebody told me you should fast and, and they, they said you should fast for a long time. So... <coughs> <coughs> I can hardly get it out. Um, so, I, so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast. And then I thought, because I, I, when I fast, I'm going to feel like a spiritual giant. Maybe I'll write about what a spiritual giant I am since I fasted. And tell people, you know, how long I fasted, how well I fasted, and what a spiritual giant I am. Well, you know, what I did was I fasted. And if you ever had this experience, if you go without food, that's depressing. It's depressing. It is. I mean, try it. Try to just not eat today and tomorrow and, and the next day. And what's going to happen is you're going you're to feel weak and you're going to feel kind of hungry and you're going to get a headache because you didn't drink coffee like you normally do. You didn't have your drugs. And, and, you know, you, and you're going to be like, wow. I, and you're going to be a little bit surly with your wife because, I mean, my kids, when I was younger, they would go, if I tell them I was fasting, they would go, oh, no. 
They would. They would like he's not going to be his normal, happy, sanguine self. He's going to be kind of moping around. Is that interesting? What did Jesus say? Hey, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces so that they're fasting, they may be seen by others. <laughs> they already have their reward. That's a small reward, isn't it? Weird people looking up to you. Yeah. And then, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fast may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father will reward you for fasting. Now, so, so I was going to fast one day. I think I was going to try to fast three days. And about a day and a half in, my blood sugar was low, and I was just like, man, I was dragging around. I was kind of, dis, you know, almost like depressed feeling, you know. And I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like it anymore. I want to eat food. And so I just broke my fast and ate food. And when I did, it was like I took a shot of something, you know. It was like my blood sugar had spiked, and I felt euphoria. And, and here's what I'm trying to get across to you. I've had some experience fasting, but it's all been kindergarten. Here's what I've learned from fasting. I've never fasted yet and felt like a spiritual giant. Because when I try to go without food, I realize what an idolater I really am. I would rather have food than time alone with Jesus. My food is important to me. I like my food. When you try to fast, you realize, hmm, where, where, where is your treasure located? Where is your hunger really located? Jesus is saying, if you want to be satisfied forever, locate your hunger in me because you will always be satisfied. But if it's located in anything else, you will never, and so you experiment with fasting or you practice fasting secretly so that you do that work in your soul and you recognize, God, I see how little I hunger for you and how much I should hunger for you. Does this make sense? So this is just a little short thing on Jesus' people, give and pray and fast without hypocrisy. So let's go to the next one because we only have a couple of hours today. Um, Jesus, by the way, he called out religious hypocrites. And I just want you to notice this before we go on. In, in verse 2, when he's talking about giving, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. In verse 5, when he's talking about prayer, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And he's pointing out to the scribes and Pharisees very directly. This is kind of manly. This is like man up time. He's like, those, don't be like those guys. This is important. Like, Jesus was nice, right? He was loving. He was nice. He was kind. But there are times nice means you call out religious hypocrisy. I've learned this. Religious hypocrisy hurts people. Religious hypocrisy stinks. Religious hypocrisy confuses people. And Jesus hates it. And he calls people out by name when they're, you know, it's one thing to be a sinner, a good, honest sinner, you know? You get a little more room on that. You get time to repent if you're a good, honest sinner. But if you're a religious hypocrite, Jesus is going after that. It's not that he's not patient, because he is, in the picture of, the, of the Luke 15, and he goes out and he says to the older brother, who's a picture of a, you know, a older brother's a picture of the Pharisees who are grumbling. He says, you've been with me all this time. All that I have is yours. Please come into the party. That's how Jesus feels about religious hypocrites. He wants to invite them to the party and stop being religious hypocrites. So he calls this out. He does it in verse 16. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. But look at number nine. nine. Number nine is Jesus' people lay up treasure in heaven by being generous. Or a simple way to say this would be just this. Jesus' people, they cultivate generosity. They're giving people. I want to say something a little sensitive, and I, and I appreciate it if you know I, I care about you, I love you, and I love uh, 
people of all colors, all races. I'm going to tell you something a little sensitive. And, and it was like the first black person I ever met. I was afraid of people who were black because all the people I hung out with were colored like me, kind of putty colored, kind of off-white. And, and I didn't hang around people that had darker skin, like most of the world has darker skin, right? But there was a little section of town where people who had, like you guys are listening really carefully right now, like he's going to get himself in a lot of trouble. I'm going I'm to try to be good here. So I'm going to, I have to go. So I, my, my dad is a janitor at a Catholic school, and I want to buy this little toy, which is in Grand Rapids. It's down the road, but I have to go through this neighborhood where people live whose skin is darker than mine, and I was afraid, and they're probably afraid of me, but anyway, so my, I go, uh, can you take me down there? And my dad says, no, you have to go down yourself, and I'm like, I was afraid, and so I'm like seven, you know, six, seven years old, so I, but I wanted that toy really bad, so I walked through that neighborhood, no, nobody hurt me, uh, I walked through that neighborhood, and then I bought the toy, and then I came back through the neighborhood like, oh, and I made it, you know, I made it through the neighborhood, nothing happened to me, and I got back, and I was like, Phew. and then my dad looks at the toy, and he goes, where's the change, and I showed him, he goes, they didn't give you enough change, you need to go back, I was like, I, I can't go back, and he goes, yeah, yeah, no. My dad is like with money. He's really careful. You know, it's like, no, they, they, they shorted you a dime. Just go back. It's not a big deal. You need to learn. Just go, just go, you know, go back. Well, I don't want to tell my dad. I'm afraid of people that are different than me. So, you know, I'm kind of freaked out about that. So I don't want to tell him that because I kind of knew that that wasn't good. Uh, but I wanted that. You know, my dad made me go back. So I go back through the neighborhood. I tell the girl, hey, um, you didn't give me enough change. And the girl says, yeah, I did. And I go, I don't think so. And her boyfriend was there. And he kind of like bows up on me. He goes, hey, kid, look. You know, she told you she get, just get out of here. Go on, get I'm like, I was really scared. I don't know. You know, and I'm scared of him. I'm scared of going back through the neighborhood. So I'm going back through the neighborhood again. And now I'm crying. And I'm a dime short. And my dad's going to ask for that money. And I didn't know what to do. And there was a little store there. And I thought, well, maybe somebody in the store can loan me a dime. And I walked in. There was this elderly African-American lady with an apron on. And she saw me crying. And she says, honey, come over here. And she, she, she knelt on her knee, and she took her apron, and she wiped a tear out of my eye. She said, why are you crying? And I said, I need a dime. <laughs> she says, well, honey, I'm going to give you a dime right now. Come with me. And she took me in the back of the store, and she opened up her little register, and she gave me a dime. And now she said, you don't need to cry anymore. That's the first black person I ever met. She didn't even hurt me. <laughs> so I go out and I go back. You know, over the years I've thought about that lady. Here's what I think. I think I'm going to meet her in heaven. I just do. I think she was a Jesus follower. I think her heart was full of love because she loved my Jesus. She could have been a Buddhist. I don't know. But I think she was a Christian. I do. Because that's what Christian people do. Christian people are givers. Christian people are generous. Christian people have given so much in this world because of Jesus. They're so generous. So many things have happened in this world because Christian people give. It's just what Jesus people do. And I want to say to God, God, I want to be a more generous person than I am right now. I want to trust you with my money. I want to invest in things that are good. I want to be a Jesus people. I want to... I want to lay up treasure in heaven, you know, and not on, on earth. When my son Chuck was a youth pastor up in Door County, Wisconsin, he had this old beater truck, an old Toyota truck. It was like, this is really a beater of a truck. And he had like baloney skin tires and he never changed oil because he was always short of cash. A guy in the church says to him one time, he goes, how long has it been since you changed oil in that car? And 
Chuck said, I don't, I don't know. And the guy goes, listen to me. He goes, you take that into this oil change place as a dealer. You take it in there and you, you tell him, I said, you know, you leave it. You tell him, I said, change the oil. Give him a new filter, take care of that. So Chuck goes in, he takes his truck to this dealer and he, somebody else picks him up and then he comes back later. And when he comes back, he looks at his truck and he's got brand new tires on his truck. Brand new tires, $700 on that SUV that he old, that man, that Christian man, changed his oil, gave him new tires. When I drove away, leaving him up in Door County, I cried all the way down the Door Peninsula, leaving him alone. God, how's he gonna make it living there alone? How's he gonna make it? Like God's people were all around him. He was coming home one time from, from, uh, to, for, for the holiday, and he said, I was just saving up my money, and I was cashing in cans, and I was watching my money so that I could get home. And I realized that, you know, if I didn't eat anything on the way home, I'd have enough gas money to make it home for Christmas. And he said, a couple in the church said, hey, why don't you stop over and pick something up before you go? So they gave him this little box. It looked like it might be a tie, which, of course, is a great evil. Um, or it might be like peanut brittle, which is less evil. And he opened it up, and he thought, you know, is it a tie or is it peanut brittle? You know, because it's one or the other. But it was $1,000. It was $1,000. It was a gift card for $100 to a, to a little store. And, and he went to this little store, this little hardware, and he bought this little, he bought this little um, fireplace. And he has it in his home today. Now Chuck is a youth pastor still, but now he has two little girls and a little boy. And I see him playing around that little fireplace. And to this day, still warms them as if they were wealthy people with a big real fireplace. Because God's people are generous. They, they look around, they help people. That's one of the most beautiful things about Jesus' people. They're generous. We don't ever want to give that part up. We might, and you know what? Can I just tell you what, I, what I'm learning is? I used to think generous means I've got to wait until I get a lot of money to help people in a big way. But that doesn't work like that. It's like be a better tipper than you are, right? D- given a small, what, what you have, given a small way. If you're a kid and you have a smaller income, like, be generous with your brothers and sisters. Be generous with other people. Learn to be generous. Learn to be a giver. Here's one of the reasons why we'll get to it, but something about trusting God with money lifts the load of worry. Uh, and so we probably should get to that. So the, so the next thing there that Jesus says, it's number 10 in, in my little wonderful numbering system, is um, Jesus' people, they don't worry, but they trust God. They don't worry, but they trust God. I'll tell you this too. You know, when you take the commands of Jesus seriously, if you have this experience, when you take the commands of Jesus seriously, the Bible gets real, real. Have you noticed this? I went to Flint. I didn't want to go. God sent me to Flint to live in Flint in a hotel. I'm a country boy. I want to live out in the country. I love the smell of, you know, cows and stuff like that. But God sent me to downtown Flint to live on the sixth floor of a hotel that the windows didn't even open. You know, you, you can't get the windows. And I, I was like, oh, wow, Lord. You know, but it was clear he sent me. And then it would be, crazy stuff would happen. Like, one, I was responsible for the whole building and all the students in the building, and they'd bring their cars. And one day some guys went through and they bashed the windows out of like 22 cars and stole stuff out of the cars. And I was walking through the parking lot thinking, how am I going to explain this to all these parents who sent their kids here and we haven't secured the parking lot? And then I remember what Jesus said, you know, 
Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. I thought, wow, the Bible gets real when you go where he tells you to go and do what he tells you to do. I was up in my room one day, and the guy named Isaiah was at the front desk, and he called me and says, Pastor Pierpont, I'm not sure what to do. There's a naked guy down here. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe, like, put clothes on him? I, but I thought, that's funny, because later on in one of the discourses of Jesus, he said, when did you see me naked, and you, and you clothed me? It's like, the guy was on drugs and took off all his clothes. And I said to Isaiah, well, if you get it, you know, put somebody else in charge of the desk, go back in a lost and found, so you can find him some nice things, put them on him, so that he's not naked anymore. What's, what makes life interesting is Jesus' teachings were much more profound than we realize. When we take them seriously, our life starts getting real jiggy. Stuff starts happening. It's like, hmm. Anyway, so let, this last thing about worry. Let me help you with this. And I, and I want to, let's just talk here about this. Why, when Jesus says, I don't want you to worry, notice what, how he says it. It's like a command. Verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you wear. You know, like, don't worry about where your taxes money is coming from. Like, hey, are you like me? You're like, okay, 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 but how? How do you not worry? Isn't worry kind of involuntary, right? You're not worrying on purpose. You don't want to worry. You don't go, I think I'll just go worry for a while. You don't do that. You, you just lay down in bed and you can't go to sleep because you're thinking, like, what am I going to do? And you have anxiety. And people are plagued with anxiety. It's a serious problem. But Jesus directly talked about it. And he says, don't worry. There must be another, there must be a way to not worry. And I want to suggest that it's actually embedded in this text. Let's go to this next slide. And I'll show you this briefly about how not to worry, which is probably not good grammar, but you know what I'm talking about, right? How to not worry, or how not to worry. How to not worry. Yeah. So if you take the text that we're looking at, and you go back through, you notice that if you do the things the text says, they're the kinds of things that displace worry. You can't worry and do these things at the same time. So look at this little list now. First of all, so become a generous soul that's what jesus was saying in verses one through four give so what do we mostly worry about often is like money all right so what's counterintuitive is like i'm just gonna be a giver well what's gonna happen if you're an old timer here and you've walked with the lord for a long time you're gonna say something like this you're gonna say this you hear old timers in church say this all over the country you can't out give god old timers around the country live through the depression you said people in my church live through the depression lived through World War II, you know, terrible circumstances, and they would say, we were in a depression, but we always had something to eat. God always took care of us. What happens when you learn to give is like you're trusting God, and becoming a generous soul actually helps you not worry. If you look there in verses 19 through 24, you see that he says, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. So when, there's another one. So we, the first way, become a generous soul. The second, turn your worries into prayers. So that's what he says. He says, when you, instead of worrying, pray. So this maybe sounds simplistic. But if you were to say to me, Pastor, how do I not worry? Now, it's probably a process of learning. But I would just say this one thing, this practical tip. And that is take your worry and immediately turn it into a prayer. And then it's kind of not really a worry anymore. It's a prayer. Does that make sense? So every time I'm worrying about, what are you worrying about? Talk to the Lord about that. Here's a third one. So you got become a generous soul, turn your worries into prayers, develop a deep hunger for God. A lot of times when we worry about things, because our worries, you might want to write this down. Your worries 
expose where your treasure is. Your worries expose where your trust is. Are you with me? Your worries expose where your treasure really is. Your, what you worry about tells me what you really trust in. Now, if you're trusting in the living God who will never leave you and never forsake you, he's a good, good father, then you don't need to worry because he's promised he'll give you your basic needs, which is all you really need. You need him and your basic needs. So this is when I develop a deep hunger for God. Become a generous soul. Turn worries into prayers. Develop a deep hunger for God. And there's one more. Meditate on truth. And where do I get this? In the text, Jesus gives commands. Jesus in his ministry would give these commands. And they, it was interesting, like, like in chapter 11, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come here, I want you to rest. Well, that's not a hard command, is it? Like, wow, how nice is that? Come, come, come here. Just sit on the porch for a while, and would you listen to the bird songs? You do not run the world. I run the world. You sit on the porch. Sit. Sit for a while. He literally says this. It's a command. This is why people love Jesus. He, he says, come apart, rest a while. He says, I, have you looked at the birds lately? He commands us. I've done this a little bit. I'm learning to look at birds. Like, do you realize the variety that he's put in birds is amazing? I mean, it's like shocking. It's almost humorous. Like, if you listen to bird people, it's hilarious to listen to them. No, 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 no. That's not a yellow rumped warbler. That's a chestnut-sided warbler. Like, oh, from here I just could see a bird. I, I didn't know. Like, no, you ignorant. That's not that kind of bird. You don't know. That's a finch. That's not a warbler at all. Go away, you plebe. Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus says, I want you to look at the birds. Now, we don't want to take this too far, I suppose, but that's a beautiful command. Can you just look at the birds? Or, or when Jesus, I like to imagine that Jesus is talking to people most of us, like us, are living at a kind of a near a subsistence level. We're like week to week or maybe even daily bread, day to day. And I like to believe he's standing out there on the mountain and he, and he sees these beautiful flowers waving in the breeze and he goes, consider the lilies of the field. And then he says this most beautiful thing, Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You don't have to worry about your clothing. You seek first the kingdom of God. You locate your treasure in me. I'll see to you have all you want. You don't have to worry. This is powerful stuff, isn't it? This is powerful stuff. You mean to tell me if I work on being a giver and I turn my worries into prayers and I develop a hunger for God, you know, through fasting and I meditate on truth. That's why I said consider the lilies and consider the birds. What is the truth that you're supposed to meditate on? God takes care of the simplest bird and you're more important than the simplest bird so he'll take care of you. So how do you overcome worry? These are some ways. I give and I break the back of greed, the evil eye that he was talking about. And I pray, and I can't worry and pray at the same time. And I develop a hunger for God because when I locate my, my treasure in God, I don't need to worry. And when I meditate on God's truth. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a practical thing that Jesus taught. When we were younger, for the years of our life, that we seem to be raising our kids. It was like pretty much week to week, day to day sometimes. And, and really from about 1979, when we got married until about 1996, maybe even 2002, it was kind of like that. It was all during the years when all our kids were at home. And um, over and over again, we would have to say, well, let's pray that we sell something or we get something or we grow something or... We, 
And, it was, and that's just the way we live. We started a church 10 years. We were kind of not paid a lot. I look back on that time, though, and I think, it would have been nice to make about three times as much money as I was making, and life would have been a lot easier. By the grace of God, I have four sons and four daughters who believe that Jesus is God and that he meets the needs of people who trust him. And maybe that's how he did it. Maybe they saw us praying that he would take care of us and they came to believe in God. And so maybe there's just a blessed dependence. We're going to sing a song right now, and it's a gorgeous song. We're going to sing, we're going to greet one another a little bit, come back for a business meeting, but we're going to sing a song, which is basically the song is saying, you are all I need. I think it would be wonderful for us to affirm that to the Lord and sing it and just say, okay, this is the way I want it to be, God. I want to say you are really all that I need. Heavenly Father, as we sing, I pray that you hear our song. We are, we are not the Jesus people we want to be, but we sure love reading about what, what we could be. And we ask that you would make us Jesus people.